Welcome to the Machines in Molecules podcast. Machines in Molecules hosts guests who have backgrounds in chemistry, biochemistry, and machine learning. And our guest today is François-Xavier Briol, or FX, as he likes to be referred to. Um, FX is a lecturer at University College London, and his research interests are probabilistic numerics. That's probably how people got to know you in the community. Uh, kernel methods, because these are very connected to probabilistic numerics, oftentimes integration methods and applications. I think in the physical sciences, I also saw some publications in that. Hi, FX. Hi. How nice are you doing? doing? Yes, good, good. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for the invite. Yes, of course. Um, so, did you think of a third M word by chance? <laughs> yes, I, I, I've actually got uh, two M words uh, that go together. So, I guess uh, one, well, the M words that I thought about were model misspecification. Uh, mm -hmm. So, it's directly quite technical as opposed to kind of high level. Um, but I think that's that's been a theme of my research in, in kind of um, recent years. And so I thought we could talk about that a little bit, perhaps later yeah. in the podcast. Um, or, so I, or maybe now. Or maybe now. Maybe. Yeah, sure. So maybe so you I, can maybe you can tell um, the listeners what model misspecification is and why it's interesting. Yeah, sure. So I guess um, the the way I come from this is that. I'm quite interested in kind of developing statistical or machine learning tools to, to help scientists or, or engineers. And I guess one of the main challenges there is that the, the scientists and engineers, they have these models of whatever they are studying. So it could be molecules, it could be something else. Um, and they're normally, you know, they've spent years and years, lots of researchers focusing on these models to refine them to really represent, in this case, perhaps the chemistry or the physics. Um, but then it's always going to be the case that these models are somewhat imperfect, right? You can spend more and more time developing your models. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, you probably don't have enough resources to make the perfect model. So all of these models are wrong. And, and that's kind of fine. Um, so of course, you know, as long as your model is pretty correct, then you'll be able to make useful predictions with these models. Um, but the problem is that models can sometimes be incorrect in, in very specific ways, which means that then when you kind of try to calibrate them with data, so essentially do statistics or machine learning um, to, to kind of refine them and make more useful predictions, um, basically the statistical algorithms assumes the model is correct and therefore kind of learns the wrong thing if you want. And so I think there's still a lot of work to be done in this area. It's, it's kind of something that people have thought about for a very long time. But I think because of advances in, in kind of statistics and machine learning, more in terms of like the scale of problems that we're looking at, um, there's many kind of important questions that remain. And in fact, many of the kind of more modern algorithms need to be adapted a little bit more to kind of be more robust to certain types of model misspecification. So essentially be able to, mm -hmm. to kind of be fine with the model being a little bit wrong uh, and still mm -hmm. you know, lead to useful predictions. Yes, I, I guess it's, a, it's quite a Bayesian thing also to think about, right? Because in, in, in the Bayesian approach, uh, some people uh, say, well, there's no such thing as overfitting uh, if you do a Bayesian approach, but misspecification you have. 
Or would you say that's not true? Um, I, I don't think it's particularly a Bayesian concept. Uh, in fact, I think, in, for example, in statistics, most of the literature on robustness to model misspecification actually comes from the frequentist side. So if you look at kind of Bayesian methods, there's been a little bit, uh, mostly in the like 70s, 80s. Uh, and then there's like a very big gap. And now people are kind of starting to look at that again. So, mm -hmm. so here is, I guess, in a Bayesian setting, the problem would be, I have this model, let's say, of some molecules. Uh, I'm going to try to calibrate this model from some data that I'm collecting in the lab. And I'm going to therefore use, I don't know, Uh, some sort of Bayesian model, maybe put a prior on some parameters of the model. Uh, but for that, I'm then going to have to assume that, you know, my model is correct. I, I know that this model of molecules is correct in order to get my posterior. And if that's not the case, then essentially the posterior is not really a useful quantity, I guess, because yes. you're kind of concentrating your beliefs into something which is going to be completely wrong because you're using the wrong mm essentially likelihood. And mm. so actually there's not that much in this space in the Bayesian mm. world. And it's only kind of in the last few years that there's been kind of a resurgence of, of research in this area. Um, mm. So I think there's much more to be done mostly because, you know, we're now starting to use kind of whether it's Bayesian or not statistics and machine learning in, in kind of more interesting scientific problems where, you know, it does matter if uh, <laughs> you focus on the wrong <laughs> predictions. So, yeah. you know, if, if we suddenly started using, I don't know, statistics and machine learning to predict, you know, future behavior of the climate and it turned out to be wrong, then I think people would be very unhappy with us. <laughs> Similarly, I'm not saying that's the case, by the way. I'm just giving you kind of uh, some yeah. examples. And, and so I think, yeah, basically we, we need to start thinking again a bit more about, about what we're doing. So it's not yeah. always possible to make the model more complex and we need to kind of design methods that can deal with that. Yes, absolutely. Um, so does your interest in that come from the physical sciences and physical applications mostly? or um, Mostly actually it comes from the more methodological side. So I, I've kind mm -hmm. of found some interesting work that I that kind of like opened my eyes to this question that I hadn't really considered for a long time. But I also work with a lot of scientists. And so basically, you know, a lot of the time they don't really mention this. But then when you start asking questions, they say, oh, yes, we know the model is wrong in this way or we know it's wrong in this way. And that's kind of okay. But they don't really know if it's okay. They just <laughs> they have to deal with it because, you know, that's all they can do. But I think um, usually what people tend to do is they use the wrong model, make certain predictions and then kind of know, in, you know, because of their background knowledge in the kind of problem that they have to adjust a bit these predictions in some way to, mm -hmm. to kind of account for that. Uh, whereas I think, you know, if we want to also make the whole process a bit more, what we should be doing is kind of directly, in, you know, doing the statistics and machine learning, yes. taking this into account and, and kind of uh, not having to rely on, you know, some sort of intuition that the scientists might have. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's an important part. Um, trying to uh, per the the collected knowledge into the statistical model rather than relying on humans, um, at least in order to safeguard humans. So I think it's it's uh, especially um, for um, places where you use statistics and machine learning to make decisions 
it's very important to get constant human feedback as well. But it's also important to help the human along make less mistakes. By, and by, it might be that, you know, it might be that the human doesn't even know that the model is a bit wrong somewhere, you know, otherwise they might have, you know, made a more complex yes. model that accounts for it. And so yes, it's not absolutely. always the case that, the, you know, the, the person, the scientist can, can do something about it. And so I think, yeah, designing more robust methods uh, is, is quite important for that reason. Yeah, true. Um, what inspired you to go into the field at all? You mean the field of robustness or do you of, more of broadly? Statistics, more broadly, statistics and machine learning. How did you, oh. how did you become a machine learner? I see. So I, I guess firstly, I'm not sure I would qualify as a machine learner. Well, I guess if you look at my publications, maybe I qualify as a machine learner. I also don't think I qualify as a statistician. So I'm not sure exactly what I am. I'm somewhere in the middle. Uh, <laughs> but I, I suppose... Uh, the, the main reason I, I kind of started working on this was purely because when I was younger, I did always really like maths. And um, <clears throat> I guess I was trying to find something interesting I could do with maths. And being something like an 18-year-old, I didn't really know that I could have jobs in maths. And so I thought, okay, I'll look for maths and something a bit more applied that I can you know, use in practice and get a job with. And yeah. so I ended up doing a degree in maths and stats and, and economics And then I guess really started enjoying research and kind of jumped into statistics. It was more on the computational side. And so straight away, there was a lot of connections with machine learning and, and kind of now, yeah. you know, fast forward a few years. Um, yeah, that's what I am. <laughs> so uh, you did your undergrad also in Warwick. Is that right? Yes. 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 Okay. So, Understood. So they, um, <clears throat> they had this interesting program, which, as maths, that's economics and operational research. So it was basically like maths applied to interesting problems and hence why I went there. <laughs> and yeah, so, it's, a, it's, a very good, uh, it's a very good program actually in work. Mm -hmm. yeah. And um, since uh, joining UCL what is, and becoming a group leader yourself, what has changed for you? What has changed? Oh, well, I guess one thing that has changed is more the sort of... Uh, projects that I can get involved in. I guess, uh, I mean, it, it might seem a bit obvious, but I suppose uh, the more you progress, the bigger your team becomes and therefore the more interesting things you can start doing, right? So uh, now I have a fairly large group. Uh, so I have seven PhD students, so I can get involved in a lot more different areas, whereas I used to have to be, you know, quite focused. And, and I think that suits me quite well in the sense that I'm someone that kind of likes thinking about the big picture I obviously like details as well, because I think no one can really go into research without liking details, but, but I do enjoy kind of thinking more about the big picture. And um, yeah, so I guess it allows me to get involved in lots of different areas, which I wouldn't normally, you know, be able to, to do. Um, so if there's lots of different areas, uh, is there something that excites you apart from model misspecification? Um, so I guess most of what I do is is kind of, There's, there's two kind of sides to it. So um, one is the, the kind of thinking about kind of inference algorithms, so how to make them robust, for example, but it could be making them more efficient uh, or various different things uh, like this. So I'm kind of interested in doing that for more and more complex models, so models where you can't use standard tools and you need to kind of work a bit harder to, to be able to kind of calibrate these models. And the other side is, I guess you've mentioned it already, is more the computational side. So 
once you've got a, a model, you've got a statistical algorithm, how do you actually go and, you know, implement these things and make them more computationally efficient? Mm. So, you know, for example, if you, if you work with, I don't know, so it's, for example, one of my colleagues uh, at UCL, he's an expert in tsunami modeling. And so mm-hmm. he has these very large physical models of tsunamis that he runs on computers. Uh, and I guess the ultimate goal would be doing something like tsunami prevention systems. Mm. Um, so there, the problem is that it takes a few minutes to do one run of the model. And usually to make useful predictions, you might need thousands and thousands of runs. So I guess in those cases, you know, doing the kind of statistics and machine learning requires computational tools that are really quite specialized to expensive problems. And so that's one other area that I've been looking at. So the more Mm -hmm. complex the model become, the more expensive they tend to become to run on computers. And so the more you have to think carefully about numerical algorithms that can implement them in an efficient way. So without perhaps as many simulations. Yeah, very much so. So the tsunami model, that sounds like it's an actual fluid dynamics problem that he's implementing there? Or? That's right. So, so basically, I, I'm not too involved in this. So, you know, take what I say with a, <laughs> with yeah, a pinch yeah. of salt. But uh, um, so we, we have a, a student together. And so the rest of his group focuses mostly on uh, kind of implementing these tsunami models and then kind of doing statistics and machine learning so as to be able to get uh, faster predictions. So he runs the, mm-hmm. the fluid dynamic model. Uh, so he's got some nice package that you know solves the PDs, et cetera, uh, efficiently. Mm-hmm. Um, but then on top, adds kind of statistics and machine learning to make more efficient predictions. And so yeah. I guess we've worked together more. I was more on the methodology side, kind of helping him design things like, well, you mentioned probabilistic numerics. So more efficient probabilistic numerics algorithms specifically for these types of problems. Um, mm. And I think that's kind of interesting um, as a problem. So really thinking about, uh, you know, not necessarily big data, but actually small and very expensive <laughs> data. Mm. That's a whole new, you know, big challenge as well. And and I guess people talk about it less, uh, it's perhaps a bit less sexy as a, as a topic, but I think for, kind of science and engineering, that's probably one of the main topics uh, that is of importance. Yes, definitely. Uh, Also, I think some other um, people see this as an area to improve in. Um, Of the more well-known ones, Andrew is talking about models for small data, rather. Mm -hmm. But we also see it um, at the company that uh, collecting data points is just so expensive because in order to get uh, 20 data points, you have to do an experiment for three months or something. So I used to see these, uh, I used to see these papers from university where I, I thought, well, this is kind of contrived. So you claim that a data point is so and so expensive. So you're Uh, can do this very expensive numerical integration method um, and justify it by that, but that's actually the case in, mm-hmm. uh, for some for some applications. Yeah, yeah. And so I guess one of the interesting areas that I personally don't work in, but I think is you know valuable, is uh, this idea of kind of merging physical models or you know it could be chemical models or essentially mathematical models and machine learning. So I think kind of Mm. trying to think about how can we embed some of the properties encoded in in these physical models into our machine learning models so that, you know, 
you don't need a gazillion data points. You can, you know, use much less. I don't know about 20, but, yeah. you know, <laughs> uh, yes. uh, at least, yeah. you know, the more, I, I suppose, the more properties from the physical model you embed in the machine learning model, the less data you'll eventually need to, to kind of make useful predictions. And so I think that there's, yeah. there's, you know, this whole field of physics-based machine learning, I think is something that we should look more into and, yeah, I, although I haven't worked on it myself, I think it's something that's uh, definitely something to look at. Yes. Is there something like this that uh, excites you about the development of the field, but that you don't go into yourself at the moment? Well, yeah, so I guess physics-based machine learning, uh, what else excites me? I guess another thing that I think is is really important, although I've stayed very far away from that, is things like probabilistic programming. So actually, you know, mm-hmm taking all the tools that people like me develop and then making them, you know, packaged in a good way and perhaps even thinking about how to modify them slightly to to be able to automate them so that, you know, people in the sciences, engineering can go and just use these packages, these nicely wrapped up packages. They won't have to think about any sort of, you know, computational tool. They just click one line and then that's that's their output. Oh, okay, maybe not one line, but, you know, as close to that as possible. And I think... That's something that's usually important. It's something that people don't spend as much time on, but I think you know people that work in this create a it's like a great service for everyone else essentially. Uh, so I think yeah. it'd be important to for the field to think a bit more about this area. Um, yeah. Yes, definitely. It's probably one of the things that made uh, the deep learning approach successful because they have these building blocks that they package up nicely and then people can just start tinkering without worrying about many, many things. Uh, also without uh, tinker, without having to worry about having to write a proof for a paper, <laughs> for example. Uh, yeah. Yeah, true. Mm-hmm. So would you say that you also follow like in your applications to physical sciences, would you say you have a certain goal in that direction? Like, okay, I'm trying to make uh, lives of people better by, for example, uh, early tsunami warnings or uh, <laughs> helping people in, I don't know, uh, climate sciences and so on and so forth? Or was it mostly driven by technical questions for you? So I guess, um... People might not often tell you this, but I, I don't think that everyone that goes into science has this goal, like I want to cure cancer or I want to you know, do something like that. I think people that go into, into research are often people that are kind of curious, they like learning things and they like, mm-hmm. like playing around with problems. And I think I'm definitely one of these people. So I, it's not like I'm going in there thinking I'm going to you know, do the perfect tsunami prevention system or something like that. Now, of course, goals like this are important because they kind of push you in one direction. Um, I guess my own goal is more to have a nice time <laughs> doing research. <laughs> and that's probably a very selfish goal. Um, but I, I do think that within this remit, I can still do something useful more broadly. So yeah. my own goal is to kind of have a look at different application areas, try to understand, you know, I don't need to go in and understand all of the physics or something like that. I just need to understand high level the sort of challenges that people are doing and for me, it's more something that I can then bring back to more my methodological work. So I think that, yeah. you know, there's lots of methodology that's kind of developed by people that write a certain type of paper and they do their whole career writing methodology papers. 
but I think if you never talk to people that might actually use your tools, then, you know, chances are you might not be developing exactly what they need, right? So for me, it's yeah. more kind of going in, looking at the sort of challenges that's, that people face just to kind of improve my methodological work. Um, so that that's kind of why I work also with kind of more applications. Uh, but I guess mostly I'm just interested in kind of advancing methodology um, yeah. and I, I enjoy doing that. And, uh, and so it's kind of uh, a nice... Uh, yeah, nice thing to do, I guess. I'm not sure whether curiosity counts as uh, super selfish, uh, honestly. I think there's other things, uh, or at least, you know, it's not uh, selfish and superficial. There's uh, the, the mm. combination of selfish and superficial is, I think, uh, what's, what's a big problem. But curiosity um, mm. is a very uh, good motivation. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Would you say would you say there was a big failure in your professional life so far that you uh, that you mind sharing? So I guess I yeah a big failure. I guess people don't like talking about their failures, but um, I, I personally don't mind too much. I think you know realistically, you know everyone in their career is going to have a lot of failures, and very often they're kind of hidden, and so. Yeah, I, I guess I could tell you about things like papers getting rejected or, you know, funding application getting rejected. I find that, you know, although these might be like failures per se, they're kind of just temporary failures in the sense that, you know, mm -hmm. even if one paper doesn't work out, okay, well, that's, that's life. And, you know, it's not, uh, it's not really the most important. Um, I guess failure, I think, Probably one of my failures in the past has been think, not thinking enough about exactly who I start working with. So it's more on the personal mm -hmm. side. So I'm obviously not going <laughs> to give names here, but uh, I have had uh, you know difficult times sometimes with people I've worked with, and I think this is something that I could have avoided by you know either better communication or or even being a bit more careful with you know who I work with. So for example, you know, not focusing specifically on only the technical skills, but also perhaps mm -hmm. their interpersonal skills and whether those, yeah, whether we might work well together. Um, so I think mm -hmm. that's one thing that I definitely focus on now. So I, I put a lot of importance on working with people that I enjoy working with. And, and I think as an academic, you have this freedom, right? You basically get to work with who you want. And if you don't want to work with someone, you just don't work with them. That, that's, that's, yes. And I think that's really lucky, right? There's pretty much nowhere else where you can really get to do that. So, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, can you, can you, without saying names, but can you say what was difficult? Like what gave you a difficult time? Um, well, I, I guess it's more like um, if you if you work with someone where you might have like a, a mismatch of expectations mm -hmm. or a mismatch in terms of communication. It can create a lot of, uh, you know, basically stress, essentially. So mm. uh, I, I'm someone that tries to avoid conflict. And so I guess when conflicts are finally arise, I, uh, mm. I find it extremely stressful. So uh, it's mm. just, you know, then impacts my, my personal life as well, because I, mm. I'm, I'm just quite, you know, <laughs> annoyed by something. Um, mm. But yeah, I guess that, that's probably the, the main problem with it. Okay. But you didn't uh, 
it it didn't happen to you that you felt ripped off or something like this in in collaborations no not, not so much it's more it's really been like yeah uh, kind of interactions with people that were perhaps you know perhaps due to various other factors uh maybe these people were also under certain stress and you know it just made mm. the, con the kind of um, collaboration difficult and it has happened a few times so it's not just an isolated incident and I think that's probably what impacts you know my career well it doesn't I don't think it impacts my career now but I think it's what's impacted my career in the past the most in the sense that it's what I've found most difficult so I, I don't mind too much having a paper rejected but uh, like getting you know <laughs> in, in bad um, terms with some people this, this bothers me more I guess mm -hmm. Do you mind less getting a paper rejected now um, than compared to PhD times, for example? Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess, uh, you know, when you're a PhD student, you're kind of solely focused, or at least in terms of your job, solely focused on getting that one paper out. If it gets mm -hmm. rejected, you're obviously much more upset because you spent months yeah. on it. Whereas now when you, you know, I work on, you know, a number of projects at the same time, if one of them fails, well, it's more I'll spend some time thinking about why it failed and kind of um, mm -hmm. uh, what I can do to change that. I think also now I find it a lot more obvious to see like in advance which ones are likely to fail and which ones will not. Mm -hmm. And I think that makes it easier. So most of the time, I think my students will agree with that, that uh, I'm someone that's a bit obsessive <laughs> with uh, getting you know a good finalized product And so mm -hmm. a lot of the time, I think now it's more that I'm able to prevent some easy rejections that might not have mm -hmm. been possible before because I didn't know everything. So I, I know exactly where, where to look for weaknesses in papers and, you know, try to mm -hmm. um, do something about them. Yeah. And uh, how do you try to coach your students for not caring too much or not, uh, you know, not being too set back by a rejection? So coaching them to not be upset too much. Well, I suppose it's in part about kind of expectation management. So, you know, mm -hmm. these days, for example, in machine learning, you know, everyone will tell you that there's a lot of randomness in, in kind of which papers get accepted or not, right? And that's partly because, well, we have so many more papers and we therefore have to reach out much more in terms of who we ask to be reviewers. And so there might be a bit more stochasticity there. So my kind of approach, at least, at least my approach, I don't, I don't, and I try to kind of instill that in my students, I'm not sure if that, that works, but is to kind of assume that once I've submitted a paper, this paper does not exist anymore. <laughs> and it kind of goes okay. in some box somewhere. And uh, I'm just not going to think about this paper until I get an answer. It's not the easiest thing to do, but at least it avoids you thinking all the time, oh, when is my paper coming out? When is my paper coming? Yeah, sorry, when is the answer coming back? When is the answer coming back? And mm -hmm. then suddenly you get a rejection and you're really upset. At least, you know, if you've forgotten about the existence of this paper, you get a rejection. Okay, well, that's, you know, it's, it's a bit easier to manage, I guess. Although it also makes it a bit easier to then restart and make some changes. So that's... <laughs> yes, right. Um, it's a kind of a Zen type of approach, right? You just focus what's uh, what's lying in front of you and you work on that. And uh, once you're done, you do whatever comes up next. That's it. That's right. Yeah. At least that's yeah. what, how I do it. 
And that's what I try to instill as an approach, but I'm not sure that it's the perfect approach. I'm, I'm sure there's other ways, but uh, yeah. At the end of the day, you know, rejection is rejection. Everyone's going to get rejections and yeah. Definitely, yes. It gets much easier, I think, uh, once you've once you've cleared the self-worth stuff out of the way and you know, yeah, ah, sure. some papers are going to get in, some papers are not going to get in, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think, uh, especially in research, people associate themselves, their self-worth, even kind of personal self-worth, a bit too much based on their research. So, you know, mm. it's not because you get a paper rejected that you are some sort of... I don't know, not a good person or, you know, not good enough in some way. And yeah, yeah it, it's a bit of a shame. And I, I don't, I think it's because people care so much, right? You don't go into research if you don't care. Um, and if you pour your energy into something, it's kind of, I, I see why this connection is made. Yes. But it'd be good if you could, you know, help people to, you know, separate the two a bit more. Absolutely. It's, it's a bit like... Uh... It's, it's a small part of the artist syndrome where, um, where everything you put in your work is your whole self. It's not right. as extreme as that in science, but uh, goes in the direction. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And uh, yeah, maybe to wrap up, um, tell us a bit about how it was for you to go from being a researcher, working on the content a lot yourself towards um, having students and tutoring them um, and managing people, basically. I think it's definitely something that's hard, uh, but it's something that I've put a lot of effort into. So it's been kind of, I would say, one of my main focuses in the last few years, kind of doing this better. And I think I can always improve, right? I've, that's for sure. But at least just continually thinking about it and thinking of ways to improve it is, I guess, the way forward. Um, I think there's, there's certainly a, a lot of people in academia that, you know, they like the research side and then, of course, they're good at it, so they progress. But then they they want to continue doing just the research and they don't really care about you know, the rest. It's just noise because you progress. And uh, at the end of the day, they don't think as much about this these sorts of aspects. And so that leads to kind of unfortunate situations, I guess. Um, but it's something that I've spent a lot of time doing as well. So I put a lot of effort into kind of helping my students. I still do a lot of hands-on things. So in terms of the research, personally, I, I think it's kind of best of both worlds in some way because I do enjoy the kind of supervision aspect, but I also enjoy the technical side. And it just means that I can be a bit selfish and focus on the technical side that I care about <laughs> when I do research. And I don't have to, you know, do everything that's needed to have a nice paper. I, just, I can just, if I want to, focus only on one thing uh, mm. and kind of help the student do the rest. So mm. I think, I think obviously, you know, I would like to have more time to do more technical stuff, but I also really enjoy kind of spending time with, you know, supervision, supervising and, and this sort of stuff. And I think, I don't think that I like, you know, the technical side more than the supervision. I think both are. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Nice. Uh, at least they're both equally as important for me. Uh, um, Is there an important insight uh, about uh, about working with people um, that you had that you'd like to share? Not really. I, I guess it's just about kind of making sure that 
you always talk to them about kind of what they want and how they feel. And I guess like, that's not always like the most obvious thing. Obviously, when you kind of start supervising, you're thinking, oh, how am I going to, you know, help this person get the tools that they need to be able to solve this research problem or something like that. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, what might be equally as important is asking them, yeah, how have you been? And, you know, is there anything that's, uh, you know, is bothering you at the moment that's kind of impacting you or, is there anything that you think you're not doing so well at the moment? Is there anything that we could, you know, where do you want to go? What can we do to help you get there? So I do, well, I've started this year doing kind of semi-regular reviews with my students, which I think is something that happens a lot in industry, but not so much with academia. And, you know, these reviews are not like extremely serious things. So there's like a list of questions that they have to think about in advance. And we just discuss yeah. the questions. And it's not like I'm, I'm going there and taking notes and saying, oh, he didn't, he or she didn't answer so well on this question. It's not really like that. It's more to kind of find weaknesses and try to see what we can do about those weaknesses. Mm. Or if they're not weaknesses, like things that they don't like, which could be improved. Mm. And I don't know if that's a you know major insight. It's just something that I started doing and I think it's quite nice. Um, I was doing it more informally yeah. before and now I think adding a bit more formality forces people to take it seriously and really think about it. Yeah. Yeah, I think it sounds it sounds like a good idea to um write down things to ask yourself on a regular basis um in order to improve. And also it's important what you say to not have this uh, to not have a power imbalance by going in and making notes and you know evaluating mm -hmm. people but rather giving them the impression of helping them actually. Yeah. I mean at the end that's what I want to do, right? Helping them. You know, if, yeah. you know, it's not like, you know, if they finish their PhD and they have one less paper because they spent lots of time doing this thing, which is good for them, I'm very happy for them to do that. That's not a problem. You know, like, mm -hmm. it's not just about the amount of research created during the PhD. It's also, you know, what do they learn? Will they learn things that are going to be helpful for them afterwards? Um, how are they feeling about the whole process? You know, are they happy with their research? Do they find it stressful? That's kind of equally as important, I think. And Super. Thank you, FX, for Great. the nice chat. And um, yeah, I uh, hope we see each other when um, you are in Germany next time. Yeah, that'd be great. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.